When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and you're listening to my podcast, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. In this episode, I interview Dr. Judd Brewer on how anxiety drives our lives and what we can do to break the habit loops that keep us anxious, because anxiety begets anxiety. He shares the simple techniques we can use to uproot anxiety at its source. Our brain, which wants to maintain mood states that are familiar even though they are uncomfortable, with accessible exercises and small hacks that teach us how to recognize our triggers and take steps to diffuse them. Dr. Judd is the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center and Associate Professor in Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University, as well as a research affiliate at MIT. He's also the author of the book, Unwinding Anxiety. But before we begin the episode, I would love to ask you to take a few minutes right now and subscribe to my podcast. It would mean the world to me. And keep sharing your favorite episodes and key takeaways with friends and family and on social media. And don't forget to grab a copy of my new book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, available on Amazon at Target, wherever books are sold. One more note. This podcast is meant for educational purposes and is not medical advice. If you need medical advice, please contact your physician. And now, on to today's episode. Dr. Judd, what a wonderful honor to interview you. I love your work. I've known about you for a long time. I've watched your fantastic TED Talk, and you've just released a book, Unwinding Anxiety. Look, I really have read it. Look at all my little post-its and everything. It really is very dear to my heart because I just released a book as well recently called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. And it's and we talk about so much similar stuff in terms of giving people more hope with mental health. So there's my book. And so I'm so excited to talk to you. I love the topic. I love the title, Unwinding Anxiety. And I mean, that's just such a cool image. It seriously is, does feel like that's what anxiety is. So welcome. <laughs> yes. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. No, thanks for having me. It's going to be a fun, a fun interview. I always like to start off by asking, telling if you can tell my viewers, they've heard your in, amazing bio, but just tell them something about you that's not in your bio and what motivates you and why do you do what you do? Well, I do what I do because I find, you know, I'm very interested in studying reward and how our brains work. And the most rewarding thing that I have found thus far in my life is helping people. You know, it's, there's just nothing that beats it. And so that's why I do what I do, whether it's the research so I can develop new treatments to help people, whether it's my clinic, you know, working one-on-one -on -one with my clinic patients or even running, we run live groups 
for anybody using any of our apps that we've developed so that people can, you know, so people can benefit from understanding how their minds work. So that's what drives me. I love that and I can relate so much to that because I've spent my last 38 years doing the same thing, studying the mind and brain. And it's so lovely when all the scientists come together and we start putting our thoughts together and there's so much it's so much help for people. It's really changed, hasn't it, over the last 30 years, how, how, how people are getting help for their mind. Definitely. Did, yeah, it's changed quite yeah. a bit. So you're a research scientist and a psychiatrist. You're still a practicing psychiatrist, but you have quite a unique approach, which is very evident in your book. So tell us why you wrote this book and give us a brief overview of what it is and what you've written. And then I've got some questions that I'd love to dive into. Sure. Well, this stemmed out of my own anxiety. <laughs> so That's in, a good in, place to start. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? So in residency, I started having full-blown panic attacks. I wasn't sure where they came from. I, I had fortunately started learning some meditation practices myself, which helped. But the other anxiety that I had was with how to help my patients. So as a, as a new psychiatrist a while ago, I was really struggling with how to help my patients with anxiety and prescribing medications is kind of like playing the lottery. There's this term called number needed to treat, like how many patients you need to treat before one person benefits from a treatment. Yeah. It's a way to give us a sense for how well a medication works. For anti-anxiety medications, that number needed to treat is 5.15. So every five patients that came into my clinic, one of them would show a significant reduction in symptoms. And that's not very satisfying for me. Mm -mm. No. No. So I was studying how to break bad habits in my lab. We had done some studies with smoking where we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. We even developed an app for overeating, gotten a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. And so I knew a lot about habit change, but I didn't know a lot about how to treat people, you know, with anxiety in this way. And somebody in one of our eating programs said, hey, could you make a program for anxiety? So as a researcher, I went back and looked at the literature and here it is in the 80s. There was all this literature starting to come out about how anxiety could be driven in a habitual process similar to other habits. And I was thinking, no way, because I knew a lot about uh, habits. But I'd never thought to bring the two together. So we developed an app called Unwinding Anxiety, started testing it. And and our clinical studies were gangbusters. We got a 57% reduction in anxiety in anxious physicians, also saw a reduction in burnout, got a 67% reduction in people with generalized anxiety disorder. So, you know, it went from this question of how can I help people to here's some theory, let's build a program based on this theory, let's test this program. And, you know, all of that came together when I started, and I also started testing this with my clinic patients and all of this came together to form the book. I wanted anybody that was struggling with anxiety to be able to help themselves. So the book is set up as a three-step process that, you know, helps them identify, you know, how their minds work, helps tap into their reward value system in their brain, and then helps them find what I call BBOs, the bigger, better offers as compared to worry or procrastination or whatever. Oh, I love that. I can relate so much to what you're saying, having a similar career path with the research and clinic and then trying to get realize that this is, we all need this. We all need to understand mind. So I really, really honor that in what you've done. And I love how you broke up the book. Can you tell us just a little bit more before we dive into the details of the book, just tell us a little bit more about each of the sections then. And, and I'm sure that's going to, and then I've got some specific questions I'd love to ask you. Sure. The first section's about just mapping out our minds, you know, and I'll give an example. Uh, you know, 
I would say 99% of my clinic patients that come in, they don't really know how their minds work just in a very basic way. Right. Mm -hmm. So I had a patient who came in, I write a little bit about him in the book who came in for anxiety, he was referred for anxiety. And as I started taking his history, he started describing how when he would be driving on the highway, he would start to have these thoughts that he was going to get in a car accident. I think he mm-hmm. said, I'm, I feel like I'm in a speeding bullet. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And those thoughts became so pervasive that he started really panicking. And then he started avoiding driving on the highway altogether. So what we did was, you know, we mapped this out. I said, look, you know, there's a basic process about how our minds work. Anybody, you know, we all share this process. And basically we learn behaviors through this, uh, you know, trigger a behavior and a result. And that's what gets us to repeat yeah. behaviors. So I literally took out a blank piece of paper, put it on my desk and I wrote out trigger behavior, reward or result. And I mapped it out with them. I said, so is it these thoughts that trigger your avoidance behavior? And is that help keep you from getting panic attacks? And he said, yes. So I sent him home. I gave him our unwinding anxiety app and I just sent him home to start mapping those out in his daily life. So that's really what the first step is, is mapping out all of our habit loops, whether it's anxiety, procrastination, things that we do as a way to cope with our anxiety. So whether we drink alcohol, whether we turn to the refrigerator and eat and stress eat, or whether we turn to social media or Netflix, all of these things are driven in the same way. And many of us just don't know how this works. Mm, That's so good. Fantastic. I love that. So it starts with the mapping and then you go to the second part of the book, which is then some techniques. I think that's what your quick part two is dealing with the techniques. The second step is actually a critical piece before we get to the techniques. Okay, And it's interesting you mentioned that because often my patients, they'll map out these habit loops and they'll say, oh, I know how my mind works. And then they'll try to jump right to the third step. To the action. Yep. I get that. I remember that from practicing as a clinician. People just give me the, give me the quick fix. You know, that's funny. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Well, exactly. It's also, it's not, it doesn't quite work that way, does it? No. no. What, what, so what I tell them to do is really map out their minds and understand how their minds work. The second step is this piece that really goes antithetical to a lot of Western medicine and a Western mindset, honestly, which is, you know, we, we tend to go into things and say, I'm just going to do it, right? Here's yeah. the problem. I'm just going to grit my teeth and force myself to do it. Did you ever see, there was a guy, Bob Newhart, a comedian. I remember had, Bob Newhart. That okay. ages me as well. I was studying back in the 80s. So I was in that era when you were speaking about earlier on, also in the time when the, they didn't think the brain could change. Yeah. I did some of the, I did some of the first <laughs> European. Plasticity research in my field back then when they said, oh, that's a ridiculous question. In fact, I did a right. TED talk on that. So I relate to what you're saying so well. Uh, yes. Okay. And I remember Bob Newhart. Hilarious okay. show. So he had this skit where this woman walks in. The skit's called Just Stop It. Anybody can find this on YouTube. And this woman walks into a therapist's office. Bob Newhart is the therapist. Yeah. yeah. And she basically says, you know, I have this problem. And he leans over his desk and he says, just stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And then she's like, what about this? And he says, just stop it. What about this? Just stop it. That's a great skit. But the idea here is that we're taking this willpower approach approach to life. You know, my patients come in. I I wish I could just say, just stop smoking. Just stop overeating. Yeah, if it was that easy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if it were that easy, then you and I could just tell people to stop and then find another and we've job. Done. We would just write one book with one line, just stop it, you know? <laughs> and wouldn't next we do page. all the research that we do? Yeah, next page. Blank. Just stop it. <laughs> yeah. So that's the approach that we typically take, but that's not how our brains work, right? Our brains are driven 
based on how rewarding a behavior is. What this does is it helps us learn habits so that we can, I think of it as set and forget. We can set the how rewarding it is and we can forget about the details. So we can, it frees up our brain to learn other things. So it's like, is it really nice? <laughs> you know, it's an efficient mechanism for learning. Yet when we've learned a reward value of a certain behavior and we don't bring our awareness to how rewarding it is now, then we just keep doing it automatically and we never change. And we can't force ourselves to break habits until we actually bring that awareness in so that that awareness helps us see how unrewarding it is. I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. So my patients that want to come in to quit smoking, I don't say just stop it. <laughs> I actually <laughs> say, I say, just do it. Go ahead and smoke. And they look at me like I'm crazy. But what I say is pay attention when you smoke, right? Because when somebody pays attention to a cigarette, they realize that cigarettes taste like crap. They really don't taste very good. Exactly. And my lab's done studies on this. We can actually embed tools in, we have an app called Craving to Quit to help people quit smoking. We can embed tools in those apps to really map out the reward value and watch it decline mm. as people pay attention. So whether it's smoking or we have an eating app called Eat Right Now, we can embed it there. We can actually map this out. And my lab just actually just had a paper accepted yesterday. Wonderful. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. About a study that we did with eating, where we found that it takes as few as 10 or 15 times of somebody really paying attention as they overeat to help them have that reward value go below zero, where they actually shift the behavior from overeating to not overeating. We also see this with smoking as well. And, and really... What that highlights, and this is why I have this whole section of the book about this, is that awareness is what's critical for changing habits. Oh, absolutely. For everything. Yeah, it, yeah. it really is. Everything. Everything. Yeah. It's not willpower. It's not force. It's not distraction. It's awareness. And that mm. awareness starts by helping us reduce the reward value of the old behavior. This exactly. makes it easier because we become disenchanted with it. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Karen? Yeah. So, so back to, I was just thinking back to the patient I mentioned, right? So I, I send him home to start mapping out his habit loops around anxiety. I didn't mention that this gentleman was very overweight. Okay. So he comes back two weeks later. And the first thing he says to me is, doc, I lost 14 pounds. Right. And in I looked two at weeks. him in two weeks. That's yeah. insane. Yeah. Yeah. I looked at him because I was thinking, did we even talk about weight loss? Because I was going to save that for later. We were going to focus on his anxiety. And he said, I was mapping out my habit loops. Anxiety triggers me to stress eat. And that stress eating actually makes me feel more guilty. So he said, he literally said, I realized that wasn't helping. So I became, you know, I just stopped doing it because I was not excited to do it anymore. This gentleman went on to lose over a hundred pounds. Not through That's, the force, but just by bringing awareness and seeing that that, you that made him type away. of eating wasn't helping. Yeah. Well, he made wow. himself aware. <laughs> well, you, 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 yeah, he made himself. They've got to, you've got to chew. You can't make anyone do anything. So good. So the point there, you can't make anyone do anything because people often ask me, how can you make someone change? You can't. They have to want yeah. to change. But you have to stimulate the, give them something and awareness. I agree with you. Self-regulation awareness. I talk about it constantly. And I'm so, mm -hmm. so happy you raised that because it reinforces it. Without self-regulated awareness, we can't move forward. But what you also said that I love is that you take your, your patients beyond. So it's, awareness is the first, it's like the biggest 
beginning and then you've got to go beyond. Because I don't know if you feel, um, Judd, but there's so much in the wellness industry today and pop culture that we just got to be aware of the moment. And you know, there's so all the mindfulness awareness studies. And, and if you look at them, the research, yes, you do see improvement, but it's not sustainable. And my mm-hmm. own research, I saw that if you become aware, but you don't manage it, if you don't also do something like you do, you map it out and get there, what are you going to do with that awareness? They, you're going to get worse because the awareness without management, choops, it's just going to get suppressed down and the habit continues, the, the behavior continues. So I love that you said that. Well, I agree with you. And sometimes people say, oh, I'm supposed to just be aware of this, be, just be in the moment. This feels terrible. Exactly. <laughs> so it feels worse. So if they don't know how their minds work or why they're supposed to be aware, then it could actually backfire. Up. Yeah, that's, and, and the research shows that. I'm sure you've seen that. There's a lot of research mm-hmm. how that mindfulness can actually backfire because stuff comes up. Now, what do I do with it? You know, and then they, people freak out and then they've got to you know, shove it down, which is not healthy at all. Yeah, so that's really great. Very important point that awareness needs to be followed with action mm-hmm. and progress. Yes. Taking care of your body is a vital component to improving your mental health. As I often say, an undernourished brain is an anxious brain. You have to make sure your hardware is working so the software can run effectively. So, how do you ensure you're getting what your body needs daily? This is where Athletic Greens can help. Their daily all-in-one superfood powder is your nutritional essential. It is by far the easiest and most delicious nutritional habit that you can add to your healthy routine today while avoiding the need to take multiple pills or add complex routines. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you one thing with all the best things. One tasty scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend and more. They all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet increase energy and focus, aid with digestion and support a healthy immune system. I love mixing my scoop with an acai bowl or smoothies. And right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system during the winter months. They are offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit my link today. You'll basically never have to buy vitamin D again. So, whether you're looking for peak performance or better health, Covering your bases with Athletic Greens makes investing in your energy, immunity, and gut health each day simple, tasty, and efficient. Simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash leaf and join health experts, athletes, and health-conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash leaf and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. And that awareness itself, you know, I think of it as, you know, that first step is helping people understand how their mind works. So they know how to bring the awareness in. Then they start to see, oh, this awareness is to help me see whether this behavior is helping or not. You know, for example, a parent, maybe a parent of a teenager and their teenagers are are starting to go out and, you know, party on the weekend or whatever, go out with friends. Well, it's really hard for parents to get to sleep until they hear that doorknob click, you know, or the door open. And so what are they doing in the meantime? They're worrying. Well, my guess is that the worrying isn't actually keeping their kids safe, but it's certainly making them more anxious and also feeding worry as a habit loop. So here, you know, I have people pay attention. Well, is the worry actually solving the problem? Is it keeping your family safe? So they can also become disenchanted with worry as a mental behavior, you know, as a reinforcing behavior that drives more anxiety. 
That's brilliant. I love how you explained that because it's, I'm a mother of four and they're all adults now, but they still, you know, two still live at home because actually three of my kids work for me and our home office and COVID, so everyone's here. And they go out, I mean, they're adults and I, you still, you've got to catch yourself. It's not helping you. So I love how you said the, the awareness of what are you doing in the moment? And you know what's so interesting about awareness is also how we time travel because the whole thing of you've just got to stay in the now, your mind never just stays in the now. Now is informed by the past and what you want in the future or the anticipated. So that's something that I always also like to hang around awarenesses of actually our time travel, present, past and future. But I love how you said that, you know, why is worrying keeping you alive? So it's, it's basically reconceptualizing, reframing, not even reframing, it's completely reconstructing how you are using your every moment. Mm-hmm. And yes. that's important. Yeah. And the understanding of mind, I cannot agree with you more. It's an area, I don't know, and I want, this is one of the questions I wanted to ask you, is mind is an area that is not very well studied. We go mm-hmm. on and on about brain, and you and I are both neuroscientists, so it's fantastic, we're very happy, we do the brain, but mind is the thing driving the brain. It's the thing driving the habits. It's the, there's, the mind is the force behind the anxiety, and you've got to get the mind. So I'm, I'm so thrilled, that's why I was so excited about your book, because you really, really talk about understanding mind. I don't hear many psychiatrists, and I interview people all over the globe, across mm-hmm. the world, all kinds of professionals. And I've been in the field 38 years. And you are one of the few people besides myself that actually say, we've got to understand mind. I mean, you know that the scientists talk about mind or consciousness being the hard question of science, but it's the most obvious question of science. Anyway, <laughs> that's, that's just my take. So yeah. I don't know how you feel about that. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people look for ways to quantify things, you know, and so in neuroscience and other fields of science, people are drawn to numbers. Can we really just say yes or no based on the numbers. Well, the mind, you can't, the mind is hard to quantify, yet it is, like you're saying, without the consciousness, the brain is just an organ in our head. (laughs) Yep. I often say to people, I love that. I often say to people, the difference between you and a dead person is your mind. Your mind is your aliveness. So, you know, it's just another fun way of looking at it. Okay. So part two then is this understanding of mind. Absolutely love that. So number Mm -hmm. one is mapping. So you're getting, you're kind of seeing what you're doing. So you're creating this awareness of what am I actually doing with myself in terms of this anxiety. And then the second part is having an understanding of mind. So how do you unpack that for the, for the person? How do you give a person an understanding of mind in part two? Yes. So I focus because this is about anxiety and changing any habits. I really focus in on helping them understand how our minds work in terms of reward value. And, you know, the details aren't important, but, you know, there's a part of the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex that sets up reward value. It determines it has this whole reward value hierarchy so that when given two choices, we'll immediately pick the one that's more rewarding unless it's a new behavior. And then we have to learn how rewarding it is and where it goes in the hierarchy. Right. So, you know, an example would be a chocolate hierarchy. Yeah. Right. So for me, my chocolate hierarchy goes milk chocolate is way down at the bottom. And then it goes, you know, anything above 70 percent. You've got my attention. You've got your and attention. Then you some, right. Some sea 90% salt, maybe some cayenne. Yes. You so got it's like the, I have this yeah. whole hierarchy. <laughs> Love that. And that's going to. Yeah. OK, so carry on. So, so in terms of the hierarchy, that's what's going to drive us. Yes. And so just knowing that and seeing where certain behaviors land in that hierarchy. So good. And and importantly, making sure that we're very clear on how rewarding a certain behavior is right now. So for example, cigarette smoking might be more rewarding when we're a teenager trying to rebel uh, or cake might be more rewarding when we're five years old and we can eat cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And have, <laughs> you know, we don't notice any, any anything. Effects. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, oh, more cake, please. 
Yeah, but, <laughs> love that. You know, when we've been smoking for 40 years or, or when we've been overeating a lot, then we start to run into negative consequences. And it's really important for us to see just how rewarding that behavior is. So for example, like I mentioned earlier, with overeating, we can have people pay attention and ask themselves, how rewarding is this by simply paying attention? How content do I feel after overeating as compared to not overeating? And then the reward value of that old behavior, if it's not helpful, drops because we see clearly, oh, smoking tastes like crap. Oh, overeating gives me the sugar rush and I crash or I'm gaining weight instead of losing weight. So that's really the understanding of the mind is helping us see very in concrete terms, you know, what's my mind doing? Is this a habit? And is this habit still helpful for me? Is it serving mm. me? You know, is it keeping mm. me mentally and physically well? Uh, mm. If it's a bad habit, that. generally not. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So that's the curiosity you talk about in your book. It is. So bringing curiosity in to just ask ourselves, huh, is this really serving me? And at the same time, I love curiosity. It's kind of like the superpower because once, once our brains in that second step have in, in our minds have started to see how unrewarding these old behaviors are, it opens the door for something more rewarding. And this is what I think of that third step is the BBO or the bigger, better offer. I love okay. the BBO. That's so, yeah. that's, this sounds like something I need, you know, BBO. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something all of our brains are always looking for. Exactly, right? exactly. So there are different gradations of BBOs. So if a bigger, better offer is a distraction or something that just perpetuates the same habit loop or the same type of habit loop, it's only going to just cause more problems. So for example, people that eat candy instead of smoking cigarettes, they tend to gain weight. And then they, have, they still struggle with those cravings. Or somebody that's anxious and they just look at cute pictures of puppies on Instagram or whatever, you know, their brains, nothing against cute puppies. I love cute puppies their brains become habituated. And so their brains say, okay, I get it. Cute puppies, you know, give me puppies and kittens, give me puppies, kittens, and babies. You know, it's like it, they, they always need more. So the, the biggest, bestest offers, <laughs> if you want to think of it this way, the BBOs are really ones that are intrinsic. So things that we can draw upon ourselves from our own experience. Be mm -hmm. Yep. Because they don't become habituated. And ones that actually, feel, you know, they have to feel better than the old behavior. And so my, my lab actually did a study to look at a bunch of different mental states to see where they all stacked up in terms of that reward hierarchy. And we found that probably not surprising, you know, things like frustration and anger and anxiety are all rank low and things like kindness, curiosity, connection all rank high. But they also have a shared characteristic. Once the rank low feel closed and contracted, you know, like all wound up with anxiety and the ones that are rank high, they feel open and expanded. And so you can't feel closed and open at the same time. They're binary opposites, but you can bring something in that opens you up into something that's closed and already you're starting to unwind that old behavior or unwind the anxiety. So when we're feeling anxiety, we can, instead of trying to distract ourselves or do something about it, we can actually turn toward it and get curious. Oh, what does this feel like? Instead of, oh no, what's wrong with me? You know, very I totally different. agree. Oh yeah, I totally agree. I'm so glad you said that. I say it all the time. So my viewers and listeners will totally relate to what you're saying. Everything you're saying, they're going to relate to because that is so, that is so good. That attitude shift in terms of how you've just described it is vital in terms of shifting all your neurophysiology as well. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that's really the essence of the third step, finding anything that helps open us up. So if we're closed down and contracted in anxiety, we can get curious about what that feels like. If we're in stuck in a habit loop of judging ourselves, beating ourselves up, we can see what that feels like closed down. And we can bring in kindness toward ourselves and just even remember, what's it like when somebody was kind to me? What's it like when I've been kind to myself? Even that memory helps us feel into the feeling of kindness, which can then motivate us to be kind to ourselves in the moment and then develop that as a new habit itself. I love that. So with a BBO, it's very important from what I'm hearing you saying, hearing you say, is that you've got to come in with a, a very different mindset, a very accepting mindset, because mm -hmm. your curiosity is very linked to, okay, well, whatever I find, it's all okay. We're just mm -hmm. finding information in order to change it. Is Absolutely. That, okay, yeah. fantastic. Could you give maybe an example of how to do that? If I know you've given some, you've given some, but just people always, that just makes it easier for people to sure. process when they hear something new for the first time or a new way of looking at something. Yeah, I give a lot of pragmatic tools that people can use in the book. I'll give I an see. example of I one see. of them. You've done some great ones, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. why I asked you because I know there's lots in here, so that just makes it super tempting to, you know, to to, to see to understand it better. Yeah. So one thing that I like to focus on is what's called somatic memory. You know, we tend to hold memory in our body and we associate body postures with emotions. So for example, when my shoulders are all hunched up like this, it's probably not because I'm relaxed. Exactly. <laughs> right? Right? Very hard to so, be relaxed in that position. Yeah. Right. So we tend to associate tense shoulders, tense jaw, even tense eyes, like muscles around our eyes with anxiety or frustration or, or you know, not fear necessarily, but, you know, those types of things. So here, what I like to do is focus in on the eyes. And in fact, Charles Darwin suggested this, you know, back in the day that, that how open our eyes are determines how much information can come in. So if we're, if we're afraid or if we're curious, our eyes are really wide open. If we're frustrated, our eyes tend to be more narrowed. So if we're caught up in anxiety or frustration, we can focus in on our eyes and get really curious and say, oh, oh, my eyes are really narrow. Hmm, is there frustration here? And then we can open our eyes really wide. And try to get, try to stay frustrated as long as we can. Yeah, it's try to not stay easy. Anxious. That's so good. Oh, I'm anxious. Oh, because our yeah. body is saying, no, your eyes are really wide. That's curiosity pose. You yeah, know? I love you know? this. That's brilliant. That's so simple too, isn't it? I mean, that's really a, a simple action we can, our mind can tell our brain and body to do, and then we'll have an immediate neurophysiological response in our brain and our body. And the whole shift makes us feel more able to then become curious. Yes. And to yes. start asking those questions. Okay, I love that. Yeah. So think of it as, you know, add if, if people do yoga, they can add a new pose to their yoga, which is curiosity pose. I love that. Okay, so I go to hot yoga. So when I go this afternoon, I shall add that to my pose. <laughs> and if people ask, what am I doing? I'm saying I'm doing a Judd Brewer. <laughs> this is the new Judd Brewer pose. Open the eyes. The curiosity pose. Yes. The curiosity pose, a.k.a. Judd Brewer. Well, Judd Brewer, a.k.a. curiosity pose. I love that. Any other little, little nuggets before I ask you some other questions? Because that's lovely. That's really lovely. The, the other way, so curiosity, you know, lots of ways to tap into curiosity. And I love this little mantra of, uh, don't ask me how to spell it, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give it to you, which is, hmm. <laughs> right? That's got because a few M's there. <laughs> it does, a few. I don't know where they end. It probably depends on how curious we are. But the yeah. idea is, you know, if we're anxious, we can go, hmm. 
where do I feel that anxiety most in my body? And that awakens our curiosity. I love and that, that. Hmm, is non, not really intellectual. It really drops us into our direct experience. I love hmm, that. Where do I feel this? So that's another simple one. Oh, that's lovely. Those, that's amazing. I mean, those are just such simple things that we do anyway, but what you're doing is bringing conscious awareness to them in a very self-regulated way. And I te teach so much about self-regulation and this is just using what we've got, which is our eyes and our body to do the things that we do anyway, but to do them in a more deliberate sense, you know, to be deliberate about using them. That's amazing. It's that time of the year again. Summer is on its way. The days are longer. The sun is shining and the birds are singing. I think we are all ready to celebrate being outside with our loved ones, enjoying those good mental health moments that make life worth living. And you can start celebrating now with Hazar, a bold probiotic seltzer with benefits. Everything's more fun when you feel your best. That's why Hazar adds probiotics to their seltzer to help support a healthy gut and a healthier brain. Experience bold flavors that pair perfectly with a picnic or backyard hang. All at just 3 grams of sugar or less per 12-ounce can to help you think and feel your best before diving into summer. My family's favorite is the strawberry and hibiscus, which reminds me of ripe strawberries with a tropical backdrop and has just 3 grams of sugar and 15 calories. Get your cooler ready and stack up on Hazard Probiotic Seltzer by using the code DRLEE for 20% off your order at drinkhazard.com. That's code DRLEE for 20% off at drinkhuzzah.com. The link and details will be in the show notes. I love how you say, and you have touched on this, but just talk a little bit more about, you say, you make a statement here. I had a light bulb moment when I realized that one of the reasons so many people fail to see that they have anxiety is the way it hides in bad habits. Now you did reference that in the beginning, but I'd love mm -hmm. to just unpack that just a little bit more because I want people to really get, that's such an interesting way of explaining it, how in, uh, anxiety hides inside a bad habit. Because yes. we're using the bad habit to compensate. So it's a coping mechanism, but then you reinforce it and whatever you think about the most grows. Anyway, you take that away. That was a very interesting statement. So this comes from our old survival brains, which are just, you know, designed to, you know, hold on to pleasant things and push away unpleasant things, right? So if we stick our hand on the stove, we don't think, hmm, something burning? You know, we just pull our hand away. <laughs> Open the eyes, curiosity <laughs> right, pose. <laughs> right. Oh, my hand's burning. So that's, a, that's an inherent survival mechanism. And so if there's something unpleasant, like anxiety, our brain's going to say, ooh, this is bad. Let's make this go as quickly as possible. So basically we reach for whatever's going to help us do that. And so reaching for food, reaching for alcohol, reaching for our phones to distract ourselves you know, uh, Cornell West calls our phones these weapons of mass distraction, right? Yeah, it's very, very appropriate. I've heard that term a few times. Yeah, extremely. Yes. So the idea is if we have these things that can distract us quickly, our brains are going to say, just do that and just do it again and just do it again. So we don't even have time to see how the process is unfolding to see, oh, this is a feeling of anxiety all of these things, it's just that our brain says, feels bad, make it feel better, you know, make that go away as quickly as possible. And what that does is we have all these habits that we form, and then we don't realize how they got there. But it's really because of this very basic mechanism saying, hey, make me feel better quickly. Now go. 
So good. Fantastic. I love that. Okay, my next little thing that I marked off, I'm just highlighting a few. In part zero, where you basically talk about understanding your mind, you talk about the three things, identifying the anxiety triggers, why you get stuck in part two will help you understand why you get stuck. That's the mind thing. And then simple tools to teach. So I just wanted to emphasize that that will just ask you to just once again, just give the overarching for those that have just joined the overarching principles of the book, because I love how you've broken that down. Very nice and logical. So part one, part two, part three. And why did you do it like that? Just very quickly. I know you said it briefly, but just give us a little summary of that. Sure. So the idea here is that if we don't know how our minds work, we can't possibly work with them. And so really it's about, you know, that part zero and even part one, you know, part zero kind of lays the land for what is anxiety, how prevalent is it, all this stuff. And how does that relate to other habits, you know, just habit formation in general? lays out all the bits about how our survival brains are trying to help us survive. And in modern day, when we, you know, food is generally plentiful, you know, most people have refrigerators, we don't, that process is still at play. And so it, it starts driving us into compulsive shopping or gaming or looking at Instagram or whatever it is. So that sets the stage. Once we know how our minds work, then we can start to work with them. That part two is really about helping us see how rewarding specific behaviors are. So focuses a lot on both physical as well as mental behaviors, like worry, like procrastination, things like that. And so as we, it helps us update those reward values. Once those reward values, we've seen very clearly how those, how rewarding those behaviors are now as compared to before. Then step three, or the last part of the book, really gives us these pragmatic tools, whether it's bringing in curiosity through the mantra or the you know, eyes practice, or even bringing in kindness when we have the habits of judging ourselves. Mm, that's a big one because we, especially with today's technological age and the access to unprecedented amounts of data and unprecedented lies that people post on social media in terms of the lives that are perfect, which and these curated lives, as we know, is such an, an issue. And we all know that that's curated, but we still get affected by it. So there we, people can be very harsh on oneself. So mm-hmm. can you speak a little bit more to the kind, being kind to ourselves? What does that look like mm-hmm. in terms of also in terms of reducing or increasing anxiety if we're not kind to ourselves? Well, I, I like you're pointing out the first place to start there is just mapping out these habit loops around judging ourselves. Then the second piece is asking ourselves, well, what am I getting from being mean to myself? You know, I had a patient, I think I wrote a little bit about her in my book, who was very overweight. She'd had binge eating issues. And as we started to work with the binge eating, she started to recognize how she had this big habit loop of judging herself. You know, she even had trouble looking in the mirror, immediately would always judge herself. And that judging... <laughs> could even drive her to binge because that was her coping mechanism for negative emotions. So recognizing this and seeing that the self-judgment not only was not helpful, it felt bad in the moment, but it could also drive some of these other behaviors, helped her start to step out of that and then practice what was somewhat radical for her, which was self-kindness. And, you know, there, there's a loving kindness practice that many folks have heard of and used. Sharon Salisbury is famous for, you know, writing wonderful books and giving good teachings on this. But I, I write a little bit about loving kindness and how people can practice this in, in their everyday lives in the book. As an example, I, I struggled with loving kindness myself. You know, it, it seemed a little too touchy-feely for me. But in residency, when I would, I would ride my bicycle to the hospital, I would notice that if a car would honk at me, I would kind of get agitated. Maybe I'd give them the universal sign of displeasure or do something, you know, that, that probably was a little, you know, self-focused and not helpful. But I would get to the hospital and I would, you know, kind of be in a, 
in a grumpy mood. I wouldn't be in a good place to see patients. Well, I started using those honks as mindfulness bells where I'd wake up and say, oh, somebody's honking at me. And I would just silently offer them a phrase of kindness, you know, like maybe happy. And then I offers myself like genuine kindness, like, oh, may I be happy. And I'd get to the hospital at a very different place, you know. And then I realized I don't have to wait for them to honk at me to practice loving kindness. So every car that I saw, I would just offer them, you know, some, you know, kind phrase. They, they generally, they never knew that I was doing anything besides riding my bike and maybe looking at them. And then I get to the hospital and my fellow residents would be like, man, what are you smoking? I want some of that. You <laughs> I want some of that, yeah. So yeah, it's I like very great. simple. Some, they were doing some mind stuff. You were doing some good old mind stuff that using your wise mind, you're wired for love mind, as, as Eric Kendall says. We have this wired for love mind. Our brain is wired for love. Mm-hmm. So you were activating that in the kindness. That's so true. You know, it's just that's what, what, what concerns me over the last 40 years is how the advances in technology have changed uh, so great, but how they've got us caught up in hurry sickness. That's something I write about in my book. I actually written a whole section in, um, I'm sure you've seen the studies, the federal data showing how we've gone forward with medical technology and, and, and medical advances in technology, but we've gone backwards with our lifestyle diseases. So people are now dying younger from the deaths of despair. And a mm. lot of it's, well, it's basically been tracked back to preventable lifestyle diseases, which is how we're managing our mind. So it's not just go and get a green juice and do your exercise and do a bit of mind meditation. It's a lot more than that. It's, it's, it's really taking this whole understanding of mind and awareness to a whole new level and being able to actually implement it as a, as a complete rever- lifestyle to reverse it. And that's not being addressed very much. And that I believe you are addressing that in your book. I believe both of us in our work are looking to the level of the first base, the mind behind why you're doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, so you don't just try and, because we have, we are definitely in an era where if you do something and it's not pleasant or creating feelings of depression or anxiety or, or it's, you just, you know, stamp it out, suppress it, Condition it away, positive affirmation it away, gratitude statement it away. That's not working and it mm. hasn't worked. And it's created this tremendous problem that we're in. So you calling back, if I read you correctly and, and hear you correctly, you calling back f- f- to the era of let's really think things through. Let's really think and let's use our mind and let's be more curious and let's analyze. Let's get back to thinking, feeling and choosing in a deep way. Absolutely. Yes. We, that's why I wanted to interview you because we're resonating on the same thing. I love it. I love what you're teaching. I think it's so vital. There were so many things I wanted to ask you. I like this. I think this is worth teaching. You said a little bit about it. You sort of touched on the orbitofrontal cortex, but you talk about the timing, the immediate, acute, and chronic on page 17, where you talk about, and I'll just quickly read it. You can get a sense of noticing how fear doesn't equal anxiety. And then you talk about fear being adaptive. Then you talk about anxiety being maladaptive. Then you've got the sort of timing. We can get a sense of this by looking at how quickly fear the fear response happens. And then you give the example of stepping into a busy street and you talk about the prefrontal cortex and then you talk about immediate, acute and chronic. Okay, prompts. Those are, that's quite an interesting concept because people often will say to me about, you know, well, it's just, it's happening. It's so real. Isn't that just who I am? But the mind is malleable and the brain is neuroplastic and the mind changes the brain. And if we understand these things, then we can mm-hmm. actually recognize what's going on, which is kind of the message of your and my work. So would you mind just explaining that? Because I think that's really good information for, it's good knowledge for people to have to help them manage their mind. Yes. And I think this is especially important to understand in terms of anxiety, because people often think, oh, if I'm not anxious, I'm, I'm not going to perform well, or I'm not going to get through the day. No evidence suggesting that anxiety actually improves performance. It actually makes our thinking and planning brain go offline. So, so a good way to think about this is, you know, there's, there are three time scales, right? The hyper rapid, like milliseconds is instinctual, right? Reflexive. 
And I use the example of the sidewalk because anybody can relate to this. So if we step out into a busy street, maybe we're looking at our weapon of mass distraction. <laughs> you know, we've forgotten to look both ways. We see this car bearing down on us and we don't have time to think, oh, is that a car? Is that car going to hit me? You know, it's flat. And that's, that's what would happen if we were trying to think. So we jump back before we even know what is happening. It hasn't even made it to our conscious processing brain yet. Once we're on the sidewalk, we then have this flood of catacol or endorphins or, you know, all these, these molecules that come through our body and say, oh, time to run or fight if there is danger. And so we quickly have this fear response that says, oh, are you still in danger? Look around, run if you need to, right? Are you still in the street? Get out of the street. So that happens on the order of sec, you know, it's pretty fast. It's like not milliseconds, but yeah, you know, a little slower mm -hmm. than that. Yeah. But, but that also helps us learn. So if we're not in danger, that fear response comes in and says, hey, okay, learn from this so you don't do it again, so you can survive. So that fear says, hey, look both ways before crossing the street. So we learn to look both ways or relearn <laughs> to look both, both ways before crossing the street. The next piece is where this thing becomes chronic and where anxiety comes in. If we sit there for hours or days or weeks or years and we analyze and we're like, oh, I can't believe I was so stupid. We beat ourselves up. Or we think, oh, do I have a death wish? Maybe I need more psychotherapy or, or whatever. You know, all of that is just our brain replaying the past, projecting it into the future and getting us all balled up in the process. And, and that is optional. That is not a survival mechanism, right? I love that. This number three is optional. That's the piece we can work with, especially if we understand, oh, there is that reflexive response. Oh, here, here's a moment where I did something. Can I learn from it? And can I let that go? Can I move on rather mm -hmm. than, you know, wallowing in it over time? I love that. So important. These are such important basic concepts. I've got another, just one or two more questions. Yeah, it's, it's about the awareness thing again. You can see I like the awareness thing you talk about. You've re referenced it a few times. You talk about uh, mapping it out and you talk about trigger behavior results. And, you know, you give an example in this particular page, the 111 about a bag of chips that's gone and you might feel stuffed and slightly ill. Let's map this out. So just talk a little bit more about that mapping. Just give us a little bit more of it and how it relates to this awareness concept again. I just would like to re-emphasize re that yes and in fact we actually created a free habit mapper i think it's just mapmyhabit.com where anybody can just download a pdf and start mapping this out themselves so the idea is just find you know what's the trigger what's the behavior what's the result and i usually have people start right in the behavior because they often don't see the trigger and the trigger is the least important part of the equation it's actually how rewarding a behavior is that's going to drive whether we do it again or not it's not the trigger the trigger is the thing that just triggers it right so, so the piece there is, I remember somebody in my clinic, I call her my, my two potato chip lady, because every night she would dive into a bag of potato chips and she would do this as a way to bond with her daughter. You know, they'd watch television together and she would eat a whole bag of potato chips. So I said, okay, just pay attention and map this out as you eat those potato chips and see, you know, how, how few you, you know, how many do you need before you're satisfied? And she came back into clinic and she said, it was crazy. I stop after two potato chips and I'm satisfied. It's like enough of the salt. She was especially talked about the salt. She's like, after two, it's just too salty for me. So she'll still bond with her daughter. 
And she'll just, the bags of potato chips last a whole lot longer than they used to. Oh, wow. That's so good. That's a nice basic practical. This is such simple life skill stuff. And it's the stuff that we, in the changes over the last 40 years, have really forgotten how to do. You know, you're really kind of bringing back in how to think and feel and choose deeply. So I'm very grateful for that. And it's wonderful. If you are like me, then you know how nausea can really ruin your day and affect your mental health. Whether you experience it after an intense workout, on a plane or boat, during your cycle or after eating certain foods. Nausea can really impact your mood and ability to function. Nausea can ruin a day, force us to change our plans and, in the most severe cases, make us unable to function. For those of you who can relate, I've got good news. You've got to check out Relief Band the number one FDA-cleared and anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now, through Relief Band, is available to the masses. Relief Band stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach, telling you that you are sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. I can't tell you enough about the wonders this product has worked for me, especially after an intense workout and infrared sauna session, or when I eat something that doesn't agree with me. And if you know someone who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. Don't let the fear of nausea keep you on the sidelines. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for cleaning up the mental mess listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use the promo code DRLEAF, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no-questions-asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So, head to reliefband.com and use our promo code DRLEAF for 20% off plus free shipping. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, this podcast is called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, and as you know, and how do you use these techniques to clean up your mental mess? So obviously you said this in the, right in the beginning, you were the motivation behind this book. It was mm -hmm. your own anxiety. So how do you manage your mental health? How do you manage anxiety and in your own life and clean up your own mental mess? <laughs> well, it starts with understanding how my mind works. You know, I didn't know how my mind worked at the beginning of medical school. You know, all through college, I was taking the brute force approach. And in fact, you know, my anxiety was catching up with me. I was having GI issues because of my own anxiety. I didn't even know it. So I didn't know how my mind worked. So here, what I have done and continue to do is just keep mapping out my mind. Like what what am I reacting to? Am I, you know, is it some habitual response? Is it because I'm not getting something that I want? And just really seeing, you know, what's triggering my behavior? What's the behavior? And what am I getting from the behavior? If I'm irritable or, or angry with my spouse, for example, you know, is that how, why am I, why am I irritable, right? Is that because I'm not getting something that I want? And is that irritability response actually helping to improve our relationship? No, <laughs> right? But here, 
it comes back to really seeing clearly, oh, this isn't actually helping. And then I become disenchanted more and more. So how I keep cleaning up my own mental mess is really to see as quickly as possible, when am I doing one of these you know, types of behaviors habitually? And what am I getting from this? So I become even more disenchanted with it. What that then opens up for is the space to be kinder. And so if I'm frustrated or, or you know, irritable, what is what need is needs to be met as compared to what do I want? And also, you know, if I'm irritable, can I actually replace that with kindness? And what's the result of that? You know, to my brain, it's a no-brainer. You know, it feels much better to be kind and connected with my wife than than to be irritable or, or anxious. Oh, I love that. That's incredible. Before we, we finish off, I just wanted to bring up something that you mentioned there in, in terms of physicians. I've trained thousands of physicians and I'm sure you have worked with thousands too. Is and, and one physician a day is dying from suicide. I mean, this whole thing of mind is very important in terms of physicians as well. Because if you, you and I both know that the 95% of prescriptions for depression and so on are coming from primary care physicians. Mm-hmm. And every physician, I have so many friends moving in this field that are physicians and they always say to me, we were never trained in mind. Right. And and yeah, and I did part of my degree was medicine too. And there's no like no direct. So how do we speak to that in terms of even now medicine going forward? If people, the whole way society has been trained and conditioned now is that if anything's wrong with you, including your feelings, straight to the physician for that quick fix pull. So how do we get our head around helping physicians in terms of, I mean, the big picture, if they've got to be more training about mind and also mm-hmm. helping physicians to help themselves. I mean, they so I get so many DMs and I'm sure you do, like literally thousands of DMs from physicians of all specialities. Help. I need help with managing my mind. And mm-hmm. such a such a significant thing. So people are going to physicians and physicians are under such incredible intense pressure, but there's no training in their training about mind and how to help themselves. And there's such a stigma. I mean, no, no physician wants to say, hey, I'm battling with depression. Meanwhile, everyone battles with depression yeah, and anxiety. Yeah. It's just part of being human. Mm-hmm. How do, what, what can you say just about that problem that currently exists? And maybe you have some solutions. Well, this goes back to the the first question you asked me on the on the podcast, which was, you know, why do I do what I do? And you know, it's I, I'm sure that every physician can relate to this. Every probably every healthcare worker can relate to this. It's it just feels good to help others, you know. But sometimes we can get caught in this martyrdom loop where it's like, oh, I'm supposed to help others, and so it's you know, I don't have time to take care of myself, and so. You know, that that f- good feeling of helping others can actually supersede taking care of ourselves. And we don't realize that we have to take care of ourselves to be able to take care of others. That's actually an act of generosity for the world to be healthy <laughs> as a physician. So I, I did a couple of things. The first was I looked at how we could help anxious physicians a- in a way that's not going to increase their workload because that's wonderful. physicians are overworked. So we did a small study with our Unwinding Anxiety app where it's only 10 minutes of training a day. And we looked to see, could we help reduce anxiety? And we also looked to see, is there a correlation between anxiety and burnout? Yes, there is a pretty strong one. And can we actually reduce burnout without even mentioning the word burnout in the program? And we got a 57% reduction in anxiety. We got a 50% reduction in callousness, one type of, you know, one sub item of burnout. We saw 20% reduction in emotional exhaustion. All of these were highly significant. And interestingly, it highlights how an app isn't going to fix society, but it can help differentiate individual versus institutional factors, right? Callousness is an individual factor. 
burnout in terms of emotional exhaustion has a lot to do with, you know, how much we're supposed to work, our electronic medical records, all these institutional things. So even though that factor dropped, it didn't, didn't drop nearly as much as these individual factors suggesting maybe we can actually free up some energy to help change the institution and, and, and do these things. So, you know, we've, we found that treating anxiety is a really helpful way to help, you know, physicians become more resilient. And I also put together a free continuing medical education course for healthcare providers focused on physicians. They can just go, it's like seven 20 minute videos that they can, that any clinician or any healthcare worker can go to on my website and they can just learn how their mind works and learn some of these ways to work with them. So that's one way that we're just trying to, you know, give back a little bit and, and help folks in ways that, you know, I wish I had had these trainings when I was in oh, residency. Me too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for that. That's wonderful. And thank you for the great work that you're doing. And it's been a wonderful discussion. And there's so much more that I know that we could talk about. We could go on for hours with this because it's such a vitally important subject. So congratulations on your book. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. And do you have any parting pearls of wisdom that you would like to just share? Hmm. Well, I would say I love this quote that is, I think it's James Stevens who said, curiosity will conquer fear even more than bravery will. Oh, I love that. So here it's about tapping into curiosity as our, you know, as our superpower and having that become our new habit. Love that. That's, I totally agree with you. I think that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a great discussion and conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have too. I have. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Wonderful. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then... I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.